the Intersection Education Podcast. Schools are the place where different institutions, services, and societal influences meet. In other words, they're at the intersection of children's lives. In the Intersection Education Podcast, we speak with insiders and outsiders of the education world to try to gain new insight and improve our schools. Welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. I'm your host, Corey Haley. Today we speak with Scott Anuchko, communication technology teacher at Spruce Grove Composite High School in Alberta. Scott uses both traditional tools and the latest technology to help students explore their creative sides, enhance their designs and production skills, explore interests outside the curriculum and change the world one personally designed and silk-screened t-shirt at a time. Breaking away from the traditional teacher model, Scott has designed his classes around his students' passions, areas of ability and learning needs, and he recognizes that in the rapidly changing field of communications technology, he cannot always be the expert in the room. He acts as a guide for the students as they solve problems and help each other, And I think you'll hear that come through clearly in our conversation. Now, if you like what you're hearing, connect with Intersection Education. You can go to our website, intersectioneducation.com. Follow us on Twitter at Intersection Ed. We're even on Facebook. And we really appreciate it when you rate us on iTunes and leave a review. Here's my conversation with Scott Anuchko. Scott Anuchko, welcome to the Intersection Education Podcast. How are you today? Very good, thank you. I want to thank you for coming on today and talking to us about um, about a whole bunch of different things. And one of the first things I actually want to talk to you about is, is creativity. Uh, we talk a lot about the need for creativity to teach this skill in schools, but oftentimes I feel like schools don't do a great job of it. What do you think about the skill of creativity being taught in schools and what are some ways that you target that skill or that you have come to know work when trying to work on the skill of creativity with students? Okay. Um, that's a big question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so the course that I teach is communication technology, which the simplest way of describing it is sort of like an art class on computers, right? Where we're dealing with a variety of different um, multimedia subjects uh, like photography and video, graphic design and, and so on. And so basically creativity is something that's really um, built into the curriculum matter in a sense, right? Um, when I first started teaching the program, instant, or interestingly enough, uh, about 13 years ago, I really almost believed that creativity was something that you either have or you didn't. It was like an innate trait. And you would, you would sort of see students who were very creative naturally or were just not a creative born in their body. And, and we kind of talk about creativity in that sense as an attribute, right? Um, or uh, sorry, as a trait. And um, I've come to believe now that creativity definitely is something that is learned. However, it's it's a bit of an elusive elusive topic. It's not like teaching someone how to uh, do simple 
addition or subtraction, right? Creativity is something a bit more, it's not a typical skill. It's sort of like people who are very calm and can always keep their cool or they're, they're very confident in what they do. It's like, those are things that are learned and they're skills that you can sort of develop, but they're not sort of taught in a typical standard way. Right. Um, and so in communication technology, when we work with creativity and with students, um, what I've found that it's, it's something that can be taught, but it, it's almost, it's taught through using a very strict process and by not teaching too much. <laughs> um, and what I mean by that is that in, like with graphic design, um, I work on a process with students. I try to emphasize a process where, um, where every design that they create is actually thinking, thinking of it in the, in the, con- in the construct of like, this is a problem and it needs a solution. And so the problem is like this sports team needs a logo. And so the solution to the problem is designing a logo that, that sort of represents who they are and what they stand for. It's like this uh, concert is happening on this day. And so the solution to that problem or that issue is that that band um, or that group needs to have a poster that tells people what's happening. And so, so by, by sort of breaking things down into framing, framing these creative things into a really strict process, um, I have students sort of work through, um, something that's, that's done in the graphic design industry. It's like the design process is something that like is used in engineering. It's like similar to the scientific method. Like it's used all over the place. And it's these list of steps that students will kind of go through. And, and I think the creativity comes from the part in the process where, um, students will, in a sense, guess and test and they will try out tons of different possible solutions and they'll, they'll guess, test and fail. And, and from that sort of trial and error, they will stumble across a solution that sort of works. And by, sort of working through that process um, and having them stumble across these, these good solutions, they pick up these skills and they pick up these experiences that help them next time they're guessing and testing. They maybe don't, they, they make more uh, intelligent guesses, right? And they, and they come up with uh, more, more intelligent iterations, right? And they get better and better and better. And, and eventually you come to a point where they've internalized this process and they're constantly going through and, and, and looking at things from this, this perspective. And that's when you get to the type of person that's like, wow, I never thought of that. How did you come up with that idea? You came up with three things no one else even thought about because they're going through and it, it's, you know, it's, it's something that they kind of, develop but not in that direct way now i'm interested to know and i and i have a hypothesis but i'm interested to know if you share it do you think that some of the things that students learn by following that process transfer into other subjects do you see for instance a student that you have led through the process in communication technology use that same process when they're attacking a science problem or when they're attacking uh, an English essay, do you see them actually do that transfer? Um, most definitely that's like the dream. Uh, <laughs> um, and, and, and I, I really think that I'll agree with you there on your hypothesis that I, I really think that that uh, at its root is essentially the, 
the real purpose of our education system and what we're actually trying to do. Right. And so, um, at, when you strip away all the different activities like essays and, you know, um, a lab write up or whatever, um, you know, a book report, it's like really at the core of everything we're trying to sort of develop and foster those skills. And, and, uh, yeah, it's, it's not something I, I directly see cause I'm not teaching their English class and stuff like that, but, but it is something that I'm definitely encouraging and hoping that they're, they're able to sort of implement in, in other aspects of, of what they're doing. Yeah, you bet. I find it also interesting with your course that you create or you ask students to create media as opposed to simply consume media, because it seems like that is a big part of high school students' lives. Consuming media, whether it be on social media, whether it be on films, whether it be on Instagram or Snapchat, and and I've been thinking a lot about that lately, how we are, how we should be pushing kids to create. What have you found when you push students to do that creation with technology? What have you found when you pair what I see as a traditional art and creative process with their playground, which is this technology they have in their hand and that they've grown up with? Is there is there any aha moments or surprises that you might have had through that process? Most definitely, uh, and I, I think it's a really great question, actually. And, and you bring up the you brought up the idea of like this level of consumption and and what students are or what youth are consuming. Um, and I think sort of aside of the question that that's that's sort of a, a pretty interesting topic in the sense that students are consuming a lot and. Um, some might even say that they're consuming too much and it's alarming, right? Um, but in thinking about that, I, I don't know if I would agree with that. I think that, again, when we look at what media is, media is very diverse, right? It's like music, it's published books, it's all sorts of works of art and music. And so I think what happens is that the, the media that students are consuming now is just a different medium of what we consumed when we were kids and we consume different things than our parents. And so it's like every generation sort of looks at the next generation and says like, wow, they're not doing what I did. And so that's, that could be an issue. Right. So I don't know about the, uh, I don't think it's that alarming. I think it's just different. And, and in understanding that, um, I, I think that, the consumption of media and what they're consuming is is very important is is a super important part in the creative process and in in creating things and i'm sort of in a, a very unique situation in the course that i teach is that it's an option class and so I, I strongly feel that students are they choose my course and when they choose the course part of that sort of expectation on their end is that they are going to get to create with technology. And so it's not, it's not a, a case of me pushing them to create with technology. It's me having to deliver on that expectation of like, okay, here, let's, let's use technology to create stuff. And I think that it's, it's, it all really starts with, with what they're consuming because what they're consuming is sort of what they're familiar with. And so if we look at uh, something like music, which you're, quite familiar with yourself, right? Um, when you're, when you're learning an instrument or you're learning how to play something, 
right? You learn these basics, these fundamentals, but then what's the first thing that you, what's the first thing that you start doing? Do you start writing songs? No, you start learning other people's songs. You start copying almost. You copy and, 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 and basically what you, what you know and what you end up creating yourself is based on what you consume, right? And what you're interested in. And so by sort of, uh, tapping in and paying attention to the types of things that students are consuming and then getting them to, as a first step, start replicate or rework or uh, reimagine these existing things. They're working within these genres that they are familiar with and they understand. And so I think that, first, I think that people are consuming as much media as as is available to them right and we're all walking around with phones so now we're watching tv and videos on our on our phones and and all of our media now is on the internet um but that consumption is a very important first step and it's it's kind of important as as a teacher who's trying to facilitate this creative process to understand that students need to learn to tap in to their interests and what they're sort of consuming and, and, and sort of try to build upon that and build from that. Yeah. And to be ultimately a contributor to that, to that field. Ideally that's, that's your sort of end goal. Right. But I think that's often, often mistaken at early stages to say, you can't, you can't do that. Like that's copying. That's someone else's work. You need to be original. You need to be super creative, but it all begins with that, I go back to the music analogy where it's like, yeah, you start covering songs and you start learning, you start learning the style of the genre and you start learning the rules and, and so on and so forth in, in that specific area. And whether it's like making a meme, right? There are fonts, there are styles, there are so many different types of, of memes and meme styles out there and there's conventions. And so by like looking at all that, you understand that convention. And then when you're starting to create things, it's like you can work within that. And I mean, if you're to sort of tell someone to, you know, create, okay, your assignment is to create a vlog. Well, if you're not familiar with a vlog or what it is or different styles, your vlog is probably going to be kind of, you might be missing the mark, right? So great. It's original. It's, it's unique. It's creative, but it's, it's not fitting within that thing. Maybe it's not a vlog anymore. It's something yeah. different. I, I have a couple questions because I find that fascinating. Do you find that you need to actually give students permission to be influenced or, as you said, almost copy other media, do you find that it's almost paralyzing for some students because they come in and they arrive thinking that they need to create this entirely new genre, they need to do something completely different, so there's all this pressure to to be original. Um, do you find that you actually need to tell them, no, it's okay, just copy that? Or do you create activities that just they have to copy? That's where you start. Yeah, I, I, I think it's more, um, I, I lean towards the designing and, and creating and putting them in situations where they are being exposed to things they're familiar with and replicating existing work mm-hmm. and, and reworking existing things. And so whether it's, whether it's take a look at this layout and break it down, mm-hmm. right. Or whether it's find something that you think looks really good and try to recreate it. Right. right. And, and so, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of purposely doing that. And, and I find that, students um 
unfortunately at this point, uh, don't, don't necessarily have that, um, real desire or passion to, to have to generate something totally unique and, and, and super creative. And they're not really concerned about that. And if anything, one of the things that I have to work on and teach is, Hey, <laughs> you know, there is copyright and <laughs> this is fair use and, 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 and these are things that need to be respected and understood. And so it's like, it's almost the other end where you have to really explain and you have to teach the students, um, about, about those types of intellectual property rules and stuff like that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's interesting cause that's very similar to a story that I heard about a, an elementary English teacher and how she taught writing was, to take, she asked students to take their favorite book and then to copy it, to almost copy the style of that writer, whether it be how they introduced the book, whether it be the sequence of events, and then to either A, just straight copy it, or to B, copy it, but make one change that you think would make it better. And then that got them writing and it got them thinking about the elements of writing and stories and it introduced them to how the author made conscious choices to do certain things or to evoke certain messages and i imagine that that's very similar to what you're talking about here yeah i I think that i think that example that teacher what they're doing with the the language arts is 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 really brilliant right and and definitely along the lines of what i'm trying to accomplish a more traditional method or traditional approach of sort of studying uh, genres of stuff is if you have ever been lucky enough to take a art history or a film studies course in university, um, it's really taking a look at these different styles, these different genres and breaking them down into these are the different elements of them and these are the characteristics and, and so on. Um, and, and again, that's more of a traditional approach, but what I found is there's some problems with that. And number one, that's boring, right? <laughs> it's, it's kind of, it's kind of boring. And, and in a sense, it's restrictive because if you think of all of the different, uh, genres and possibilities and things that you could break down, it would be totally exhaustive to go through every single thing. And again, going back to why the students are choosing my course, they're choosing my course in my mind, they're choosing with an expectation to, to sort of be able to create and work with that stuff. And so they're not signing up as an art history class, right? Or a film studies class. They, they don't want to analyze photographs all the time. They don't want me lecturing to them mm-hmm. and they want, they want to be doing. And so I think that that's great. And that's fine. If you're going into, um, if you're, if you're doing a degree on that and you're really specializing, but a lot of the students taking my course are, are there for general interest, right? They're not all going to go on to become professional photographers or professional videographers, right? And if they do, we're giving them a basis here, but when they do go post-secondary, they're going to get that exposure. But for the student that's just kind of taking my class and, you know, wants to learn about some of the media and, and wants to be develop some creativity and, and pick up some skills. It's it's like, they're not looking for that type of experience. And so I'm, I'm sort of not catering towards that. And I think that it's sort of a, a really interesting approach to s- start with recreating and reworking the stuff that you're consuming, because it gives you really the same, the same sort of 
experience, right? And and really you learn the same things, but not in that traditional formal way of here's what this is all about and now we're going to give you a test and you're going to regurgitate it, yeah. right? Hey Scott, the the next thing I wanted to talk to you about was a conversation I was having with one of our previous guests, Jen Gefrera, and it sticks in my head because she was in the process of implementing a STEM program, so science, technology, engineering and math. And she found that in order to help students communicate their math and science understanding, that they actually needed to teach more visual communication skills that she linked to art. But when I look at a course like communication technology that that you teach, you're incorporating a lot of these communication skills with technology and I really don't think that it would be possible to communicate in the same way without the use of that technology. What do you think about the added communication skills that students develop in your class and the positive effect that that might have for their ability to communicate? Well, I, I think that, I think again, the program that I teach has really opened my eyes. Like the curriculum I work with has really opened my eyes to to that whole issue of like STEM, right? Where you have science, technology, engineering, and math. And um, one of the things that's sort of running parallel to, to STEM concepts is exactly what your previous guest was talking about, which is actually STEAM, where it's science, technology, engineering, arts, and math, mm-hmm. right? Um, where you're sort of incorporating, incorporating a lot of that stuff in, in with your, your traditional stuff. And, um, Really, when, when you sit down and look at things like science and technology and math, and now you put in the humanities with the arts, like English, English art or English language arts and, um, um, dance and art and graphic design, you, you bring all these things in and you have to ask yourself, wait a sec, isn't this, sort of all the subjects we're already teaching in school. Like how is this a new and, and innovative sort of thing? It, it seems a little bit uh, like exactly what we're supposed to be doing. And, and when, when you look at it, the, the whole concept of steam um, or the STEM STEM stuff is, is really addressing not necessarily um, what we're teaching. It's addressing how we're teaching it. Yeah. Right. And, and really we're, we're sort of sitting in, our, our current education system, as, as I've been told when I went to university, was really developed during the Industrial Revolution, right? And, and so a lot, of, a lot of what we're sort of living in and what we're working within the confines of are these boxes that were created during um, a time when society was going through this Industrial Revolution. And last time I checked, we're not in the Industrial Revolution anymore. We're sort of transitioning and, and, and transitioning very fast actually like catapulting almost into this like really knowledge-based economy and so the the question comes up and i think this is where these these sort of ideas have come from or these trends and um have come from this need for the education system to sort of change and adapt right um so something like science, technology, engineering, arts, and, and mathematics has existed since like Leonardo da Vinci and probably before. Like this, this is not a, a new concept, but it's, it's something being sort of talked about and discussed and used by educators today because again, we're working in this kind of archaic system, right? And, um, 
you know, we really get the teachers are professionals and, and they have autonomy over how they set up their classroom and, and how they interpret the curriculum, but we're really bound and, and sort of confined, constrained by, by the curriculums that, that exist. Right. And, and it's like, those are the things that, those are the ideas and concepts that we're teaching, teaching about. And so when you, when you look at the, um, industrial system of education, what you've done is you've compartmentalized every single subject into discrete topics. Like, okay, now we're get out your books. We're doing English and you know what? It's still a humanities course, but we're going to go to social studies and we're going to learn about history and we're going to learn about politics and we're going to read things and it's critical, but they're, they're not, the connections have been really severed, right? And science and math, like they're different subjects, but they, there's a lot of overflow and a lot of gap. And I think mm-hmm. that's what this trend is really trying to get at is the, is the sort of interconnectedness and interconnectivity of all these different curriculums. And um, it's something that I think as, as educators, we need to definitely keep in mind, right. And try to try to really push and, and, and work towards, but like I said, a lot of different subjects are really restricted by these curriculum documents that don't change very fast. Like I think, I was looking, uh, looking around. I think the, the oldest one in Alberta right now is the, the K to nine, uh, science. Okay. K to nine science curriculum was written in 1996, just 23 years ago. Yeah. I, I was looking at the visual arts curriculum and I think it might even be older. Than it's 1985, that. I think. Wow. Yeah. But I mean, <laughs> yeah. It's not a core. Yeah, you were, I think that, yeah, if you read, think about the oldest core curriculum in Alberta. And you, you think of how fast science has, has sort of developed. If, if you look at something like um, the iPhone, the iPhone came out in 2007, iPhone 1. And so if you look at what an iPhone 1 does compared to 12 years later, what the newest version can do yeah. and has capability of, it's like that's exponential. And so it's like what is being missed? What is incorrect now? What What needs to be updated? But you know, content is one thing and, and that's, that's a particular issue. But, but I really think that when you're looking at curriculum and you're, you're redesigning it, you need to consider things like, um, really things that students need now in a more knowledge based and, and the type of society that they're going to be going into. Right. Mm -hmm. I tell students all the time that, you know, part of, part of what we're trying to teach you in school is how to solve problems that don't even exist yet, right? And so how do you actually take, you know, content and and kind of give them those skills by saying, hey, this is what this means and this is this and this is what happened there. It's, mm-hmm. it's like you're trying to really foster and build those things so they can be successful in whatever sort of environment they're going to be around. And I think we, we understand what the reality is now and it's 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 very different. Um, with regards to the program that I teach, um, in Alberta, the, the community or the career and technology studies curriculum was redone in 2010. And I had the opportunity of sort of sitting in on the ComTech, um, portion, portion of that. And so I, I was able to sort of see the, that vision and how they reworked it. And when the community and the CTS curriculum was, was redesigned in Alberta, there was a real, um, 
movement towards these 21st century learning skills, really, in, in my mind. And, and so the, the curriculum is designed extremely open-ended and it's broken down into different, um, units and sections. And they're, they're instead of like a block of this is communication technologies at the grade 10 level. It's like, these are the different courses or units that you could teach at the 10 level and that are available to students. And so it, typically we have like five units and each unit bring a credit, five credits. Um, at the grade 10 level in the Alberta curriculum, we have like 12 or 13 different units that could be taught to students. So depending on the teacher's background and the teacher's comfort level mm-hmm. and the equipment and resources available at your school and your, in your community, it's like you can actually tailor that course at the 10 level to the students. And I mean, if you have access to a lot of resources and you're comfortable enough, you can actually offer a wide variety of different experiences for students to then choose. Mm-hmm. And so there's a lot of talk in CTS about pathways and, and, and building and, and connecting these different things. And so it's not just, this is Comtech 10. The Comtech 10 experience is sort of available to any sort of student. And then when we start talking about cross curricular stuff, um, the curriculum, each one of those discrete units was designed extremely open-ended so there are specifics as like they need to know the difference between this and this but all of their projects are software non-specific and they're also open-ended like you need to design a visual composition or you need to create a video or you need to take a series of photographs they're not saying of what and so what i found that this really lends itself to and uh, promotes is that that idea of looking looking beyond like looking beyond the subject that you're teaching and or that you're working within and opening yourself opening the students up to the possibilities of like those connections between different programs and different courses right so they could be doing for instance a series of photographs or compositions that illustrate their knowledge of I don't know, the story that they're reading or in, in Eng- English language arts, or they might do a chronological timeline from some history or something like that. Is that what you're actually saying? Like they can For sure. I, I, actually, I actually call it, uh, in my class, I call it double dipping. And I'm like, double dipping is really good in here. And, and I'm really encouraging and promoting students to, to sort of look at different activities and, and projects that they're doing in their other classes and bring it into my class Mm -hmm. and working on it in there. And I help them with sort of making it look really great and, and, and sort of going through that whole process. But um, in a sense, they're sort of going, they're, they're bridging it. And, and I truly believe that this is, this is a product or this is very easy for me. I'm very fortunate because my curriculum that I'm working within is open enough where I, as the teacher, can make that decision and sort of make that promotion or make that, that sort of push them in that direction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but some of the other some of the other courses aren't designed like that. They're designed very discreet, and they have a final exam at the end, and and so on. And and I mean, there are lots of educators out there that are doing an incredible job of of you know if you understand the curriculum deep enough, you can sort of marry them together and 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 cross things off and and make sure you're covering everything and, and teach things like 
my wife's doing science and math and she takes the science and math curriculums and she cross references everything. And she's like, okay, this covers this, 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 this. And she can actually teach the two courses together and integrate them and blend them, blend them together. But I mean, that's something that takes a little more, it's not as conducive, right? The curriculum isn't designed for that. And so you have to be able to, to sort of reach to be able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that definitely moving forward, the curriculum redesign stuff needs to, needs to really incorporate some of these new, new things and move away from a very discrete subject yeah. content thing. Yeah. Let's move into education a bit more generally. I'd love to know if there's something that you believe about learning or believe about education but when you talk about it or when you share this belief, you get a little bit of pushback from people on. They don't agree with you or sometimes maybe they totally disagree with you uh, about what you think is true about education and learning. Well, <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure if this is something that uh, most people would disagree with or not. But I, I do think that it's, it's definitely something that... Um, Sometimes we, we lose sight of and, um, definitely something that, that students maybe aren't, aren't maybe made as aware of. Um, and it, it has to do with, um, us as a byproduct of, again, curriculums being discrete and, and compartmentalized is that we really, as educators, sometimes get very hung up on the content and the details and, and the stuff that we do. And I think that, Again, realizing what we're doing as educators is we're not we're not teaching how to we're not teaching about Romeo and Juliet, right? There's a deeper there's a deeper meaning and there's a deeper purpose behind it. And so all of the different activities and tests and assignments and discussions that we have are just sort of a means to an end. And I think a lot of times we we sometimes lose sight of the fact that these things are just tools for us to achieve this end goal mm-hmm. and, and keep our eyes on that end goal and make sure everything we're doing is not really deviating too far away from really what is the intent of an essay? What is the intent of students going out and taking a series of photographs? Like what are we actually really trying to, to sort of promote and, and accomplish there? Um, and I, I think really a perfect example of this would be anything I ask my students to do in my <laughs> class, really. And I, I, I'm, I try to be very frank and very open with students about like most of the things that you're going to learn in this class are not going to be used ever again in the rest of your life. You're never going to get a job where you're going to have to change the color of someone's hair to blue. Like that is not an actual task that I'm teaching you that is going to be useful in your everyday life. Um, however, the way I go about and get them to learn how to do that is really that purpose and, and, and that intent. Right. And so, um, though you may never change hair color, it's like, I'm not going to show you how to change hair color. You're going to figure out how to do that. And so you're learning how to find resources and how to interpret those resources and use those resources and manipulate them and do what you want to do. Like maybe you don't want to change the color of someone's hair. Maybe you want to change the color of their t-shirt, right? But the, the tutorial's on this. And so, so by, by sort of showing them 
getting them to do these activities, they're learning how to learn. And it's like learning how to learn is something that they're going to use regardless of what happens outside of high school. And when we get back to cross-curricular stuff, it's something they have to learn. It'll be beneficial to them in, in their educational journey right Mm -hmm. and so like promoting things like lifelong learning and self-reflection and uh, like learning how to learn these are sort of really at the core what we're doing and it's 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 really become apparent to me teaching an option class i started off teaching social studies i taught mathematics i taught a little bit of science like i've taught a lot of subjects in my career and it's being in this elective course the students are choosing and it's kind of viewed as a little it's not core right and it's it's a little less serious it's really opened my eyes to like, why is this even a class? Well, this, they're, they're real intense and their purpose is behind this. And, and that exists in the core classes too. But I think sometimes we miss that as educators and definitely students, uh, aren't made as aware of it. So when you get into a concept like metacognition and like understanding how we learn and what we're learning, I think that if, as a student, if I can see the relevance and the value, the intrinsic value in an activity, I'm going to get more out of it and I'm going to be more engaged in it. Mm-hmm. So I think that maybe that's something we could be doing a bit of a different, a bit of a better job on. Yeah. You know, I, I ask a lot of questions about learning environments because they're really interesting to me. Uh, when you think back to the best learning experiences that you've had, perhaps that you have set up as a teacher, what do you think it was about them that made them so powerful? What was it about that particular situation that made learning easier, that made it better? Okay. And it's definitely something that I am... Learning environments are definitely something I'm passionate about. Um, And I, I, I really really enjoy talking about, I guess. And, um, again, I've, I've ta- I've had the opportunity to teach a lot of different subjects and, and again, I'm a big fan of the way the CTS curriculum is set up in, in Alberta because it allows me to sort of set up a, what I feel is like a truly student centered learning environment, um, in, in the program that I teach. And I, I really uh, focus on, using that to its fullest extent, right? And so students in my class have a choice in the different areas that they want to learn. Um, and they have lots of courses, to, different courses to choose from, and not everyone does the exact same program, right? Um, and then the other thing that I've very purposely done that I, I feel is is very beneficial for students is um, purposely designing very open-ended projects, um, like the, the open, open ended structure allows students to design their own projects based on what they're interested in. And we get back to that consumption of media and what you know and what you're familiar with. Um, when I started teaching communication technology, it's the design course and, and it's a pretty broad, broad subject area, right? It was very overwhelming actually. Um, I very quickly found out that it was impossible to come up with a project that I thought of that would be interesting to every single student in front of me because every student comes with different interests and different abilities and, and different, like they care about different things. And it's so diverse 
that great, I'm going to do this thing about hockey and these boys are going to be super excited and this is going to be the best project they ever did. But these kids over here, they hate hockey. <laughs> and, you know, and, and so this is going to be the worst thing that they ever had to do. Yeah. And so the, the whole idea of coming up with something that is um, relevant and fun and engaging, it was an impossible task. And so what we work on a lot in the, in the class is that, okay, here is the, here's what you're going to be designing. Here's what you're going to be developing. Here's your structure. But you are going to design it based on your own interests. And my joke is that my class, if, if this class is boring, it's because you're boring. Because <laughs> you're in charge of like what you're, you're choosing what to do and you are designing the other things. And, and this allows, being open-ended allows for cross-curricular projects right? If they so choose, or if they have something there, it accommodates for a variety of different student ability levels, right? Like I have some students that continue on into post-secondary, right? And they, they become professional photographers or they go into video or they become graphic designers. Or they freelance on the side. And those students are like in their three years with me, they become more proficient than me as the instructor, right? And then have some students who come into the class because it's a good time and they want to have fun and they're not, they're not ever going to be a photographer, right? And, and so being open-ended allows me to sort of assess and work with those students at different ability levels, different interest levels. And um, it allows it also allows for the ability of the cross-curricular, but it also allows for what I think is also very important in a learning environment, these authentic real-life learning experiences. And so I've also really tried hard in, in designing the course and, and this the program that we have set up to sort of incorporate those real-life projects and real life experiences for students to kind of work on mm -hmm. because I think it gives something that's just not contrived. It's just so authentic. Yeah. It's so real. What's an example? Like, cause I think that, you know, authentic learning is one of those buzzwords that no one knows what it means anymore. Can you give me an actual example of something that you thought, Hey, this is really authentic to this kid. This, this is transferring from school into lived experience in the real world. Um, well, it depends on how much time you have. <laughs> <laughs> I could, I could go on for quite a bit on, on authentic, authentic learning. And, and I remember back when I was in university, learning about authentic, authentic learning, like make all these authentic questions. And so, you know, in math, it's like, oh, an authentic question is, um, all right, so uh, you are a engineer for an oil company and this is sort of what you're doing. You have to do this calculation and it's like, it's an authentic, it's a real life calculation that an actual engineer would have to do. And that's unfortunately sometimes what authentic learning is to some people. And, and again, having the opportunity to sort of work in the program that I'm doing and, and, and within the learning environment that I've created, I've seen authentic learning. Like it's, it's very magical really. <laughs> um, so I, I could give you a couple, a couple examples. I, I think um, one, of, one of the strongest examples that we do in our program is client service work. And so uh, one of the areas that we teach is graphic design and screen printing. 
And so those are two different subjects that students can kind of choose and they can work in and they can do stuff in. Um, and so because we're sort of students of and learning these things, we have a variety of equipment and we have a whole bunch of software and students are working within it. And you start off with that whole um, recreation and, and reproducing and copying things. But um, at, at some of the higher levels, as students get really comfortable and familiar and, and sort of learn the software, um, I have a very steady stream of clients um, that are made up of um, other schools, our school, community groups, or local businesses in the area. They come to us through word of mouth that, seek out graphic design services from these students. And I mean, they understand that they're learners and they're, they're sort of, you know, it's student work. Um, but these, these experiences, these jobs come with, uh, truly what, what I consider to be the authentic experience. Like there's, it's real life constraints, right? Like they, they have to be this color and we need this many and, and it's going to be done at this time, <laughs> real life, real life timelines and deadlines, right? Like that tournament is this weekend. So this job is not handed in late. It is finished by Friday. And if you have to stay at lunch or you have to come in after school, I'm always having students coming in to like help out to finish the job that they're working on. Right. Um, you have these real life products, Right. Their students can actually, they've produced the thing and then they see their siblings or they see people from other schools wearing that uniform or that jersey that they either designed or that they printed or helped print, right? And, and the, I can't even describe the, uh, the feeling you get when you see a student's sense of pride, when they see the stuff that they kind of worked on, right? Um, real life consequences where, um, the difference between 100% accuracy on screen printing and the difference between 85 or 90%. <laughs> it's like that costs money. And, and like those are, those are actual shirts that we have to donate or we use as, as, as scrap samples, right? But it really puts it in perspective. Like what's the difference between 100% and 90%? And, and, and we're in a business environment, right? And, and there are costs and, and, the thing that I, I also really like is the real life reflection, right? Where um, sometimes we'll let students learn the hard way that, you know what, you probably should have designed it this way because now it's harder to produce. And you learn that through doing it 10 or 15 times after. It's like, now you have to print this 15 times. <laughs> it's like, you should have done it that way, yeah. right? Um, and so like those experiences are, in my mind, like that's that authentic learning experience. It's, it's, it's real life. It's, it's applicable. It's, it's relevant to the content that they're working on, right? It's graphic design. It's screen printing. It's working with the software. Um, but they're not, they're not projects that it's not a fictional company. It's right. not a shirt for a friend. It's like this is an actual job and, and these clients are real. And so it's just a different sort of experience and skill set that the students get an opportunity to experience. And it's not something that I force every single student, like you have to do a job. You have to do this. It, this is, this is something again, that's, there's a group of students that love this type of stuff. They look for it and they, they choose that for their projects. And there are other students that just want to design band t-shirts and they want to make presents for their friends or make memes. Right. And they yeah. can do that. Yeah. Um, Again, I, I I don't know if you want me to continue on with other. Well, I think we get the 
Yeah. I think we get the basic intent and I think that authenticity is is different. And I'm glad that you gave that example because as I said, I think that the definition of that word and how it is actually applied in different contexts work. I also think it's important that that you said you created that learning environment. And that is an important thing because it implies conscious choice. So I really like that. So I think that that's a really great example. I want to move into some recommendations. Sometimes I call these the quick hitters. I want to know, and, and you're, a, you're a tech guy who works with a lot, so I'm interested to see if this is uh, from the media side or not. Do you have a favorite tech thing? Maybe it's an app, maybe it's a website, maybe it's a film, maybe it's media that you really like and you say, hey, I use this a lot or you like, uh, you recommend it to others. Well, if you were to look at the usage on my phone, (laughs) the uh, most used app on my phone would be um, a game called Marvel Puzzle Quest. It's a a match three game um, that I find playing in all of my spare time. And, um, you know, it's something that brings me great joy. And I believe I've been, it's depressing, but I've probably played it for over 1300 days consecutively. <laughs> so, yeah. That's, there you go. That's, that would be the app that I would uh, maybe not recommend, but uh, that I definitely favor and use most often on my phone. Nice. Do you have a book? that you quote or that you recommend others to read? Well, actually, that's a bit of an interesting question. And uh, this, the sense that I, I honestly, I don't really read educational books at all. Um, I've read a few and it was being directed by my principal, like who moved my cheese or something <laughs> like that, or seven habits of highly effective people. So I've been exposed to some educational literature, I suppose. Um, but you know, in, in, in thinking about that and, and reflecting on that, I, I think that there's a lot of ways to reflect upon your practice as a teacher. And, and I strongly feel, I strongly value the importance of, of personal reflection. And, uh, one of the things that I, I try to do um, quite often is is reflect upon the the types of things that I I do. I'm constantly ref- in this reflective state, um, whether it's how I do my attendance to the assignments and and sort of going through that that evaluation and questioning and making lists and and so far I mean I have a very large book of ideas that I need to still work on and implement, and uh, so. That's kind of what I do in my developmental stuff. So it's a little different. Uh, I know a lot of people do read a lot of stuff, but I, I think it's a way of personal reflection and and it's how I justify <laughs> what I do. <laughs> What's one thing that you do most days or every day that keeps you well and healthy? Hmm. Really, if if we look at consistent, I, you know, I like to I like to play squash and I like to do these things like I walk the dog. But um, when I really think about wellness and keeping me, you know, healthy and mentally healthy, really, I think a, a large part of that is, uh, in my case personally, it's taking time every day to play video games and. You know, I've I've been playing 
video games for a large portion of my life. And, and I, again, like to reflect upon things that I do and maybe that's a way of rationalizing my habits, but, um, truly I see that, you know, playing a video game for a few hours every evening is my personal way of unwinding and de-stressing and sort of decluttering. And, you know, I do a lot of grinding and, and mindless stuff when I'm, when I'm, when I'm playing the game. And so it's not necessarily super mentally stimulating or engaging, but I think that's the purpose of it. The purpose of it is to kind of decompress and unwind. And as a result, I'm a very laid back and happy guy. Cause I get to play world of Warcraft for two hours, two, three hours a night. <laughs> very nice. Is there an organization or a person that inspires you that, you know, you kind of like the work they're doing and you say, Hey, I could be more like them. That'd be pretty good. Uh, honestly, it, it might sound a little bit cheesy, but I honestly, my, my biggest, uh, inspiration as an educator is my wife. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and yeah, well, like, again, it sounds cheesy, but I honestly, I, I consider her as like the model master teacher. When I think of like all the things a teacher should be, I look at her classroom management and, you know, she comes home and complains about the fact that students aren't laughing properly at her jokes, right? Like, that's the level she's at. And I'm like, okay, well, that's pretty good. And, and you know, she has such a deep understanding and, and knowledge of, like, the curriculum that she teaches and, and just develops these incredibly strong relationships with students where they're, like, you know, they're they're working hard in her class because they just don't want to disappoint her. And, and, you know, getting to sort of watch her in practice is, is very awe-inspiring and, and it's, it's been a huge influence in me as a, as a, as an educator. I've really kind of aspired to be more like her. And so that's, uh, I'd have to say, yeah, my wife. <laughs> that's awesome. By the way, I, I don't think that's cheesy though. Um, <laughs> I'm interested to know what's, what's kind of next for you. I know you've always got a few things in the, uh, in the cooker, uh, whether it's uh, working on your curriculum and in ComTech, but also things around teaching and education. You seem to be really involved in a whole bunch of things related to that field. Um, yeah, that's it's, it's a tricky question. I, I um, really, if I look back at my career and I look back at the path that I've taken, I wasn't planning on being a, a teacher in the first place and now I'm a teacher and I started off in social studies and moved to math and now I'm doing CTS. And so, um, if I sit back and, and, and look upon my, my educational path and educational journey, um, I do, I do know that it's, it's difficult to predict things and, uh, I've, I've found myself quite successful in going with the flow and seeing where things take me. And, and, you know, as, as opportunities arise, I move in that direction or I kind of turn around and go the other way, depending on, um, what's going on and, and so on. So I don't have any really concrete and direct aspirations, like moving into leadership or becoming the president of the local or moving into the, the union side. Like, I don't know. I might just stay taking pictures for a while. <laughs> Seems like a pretty fun job. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> no, uh, let's say people want to connect with you. Uh, if you are doing stuff, uh, what is the best way that they might be able to follow along some of the things that you do? Well, um, I'm 
my email. My email will probably be the best way to contact me, unfortunately. It's uh, snuchko at PSD70. I'm sure it'll be listed somewhere. Yeah. Um, I also have a Twitter profile, but I really, it's kind of embarrassing the types of things that I. Uh, Posts in there is mostly food or uh, cool pictures that I take from time and again. Um, but one one of the things I, I really really like is is connecting with other other educators, and I find that a extremely valuable source of PD. So definitely be very willing and open to come visit people or talk to them about anything. Uh, probably set that up through email. I love it, Scott. Thanks so much for taking a bit of time for speaking to us about, uh, uh, about authentic learning and, and, and really any number of subjects. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting. Thanks for listening to this edition of the Intersection Education Podcast. Just a reminder that you can connect with us on our website, intersectioneducation.com, on Twitter, intersectioned, or leave a review on iTunes. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time.